Welcome back to Breakfast. It's 14 minutes to 8. Um, before we return to normal programming, we've actually got some breaking news this morning. Police are responding to reports of a serious incident on Key Street in Auckland's central business district this morning. Oh, we can hear firing. We can hear gunshots coming from the building. Police confirmed three people are dead, including the gunman and 10 others injured after the shooter, armed with a pump-action shotgun, stormed a building undergoing renovations in downtown Auckland. The gunman's been identified as 24-year-old Matu Tangi Reid, who was on home detention for violence offences, including male assaults female. He checked in with his probation officer just yesterday. Now, under the terms of his conditions, he was allowed to come to work to this hotel construction site behind me. He was an employee of a contractor there. I do want to sort of resist the impulse to say that we should be locking more people up, but I'm sorry, with this guy, and that with the levels of family violence in New Zealand, st the strangulation thing, yep. to the extent you break a bone in someone's neck, I'm sorry, you should be in the clink. He beat the bejesus out of a woman, strangled her, hit her again with some scissors, and a bottle, and he had form, and he's not in jail. The key question Kiwis want answered is, why was this offender convicted of some pretty serious violent offences and allowed to be on home detention? Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, how do you get home detention and how does it work? And should Matu Reid have been behind bars? Often when you think of home detention, you're sitting on the couch and you're just watching TV, ordering Uber Eats. Mm. <laughs> it sounds pretty mm. relaxed, does it? It does, doesn't it? I mean, I imagine that's, if I was on home detention, that's what I'd be doing. But, but it's not. Uh, it really isn't. This is criminal defence barrister John Munro. The closest I think I can put to it is it, it suggests that it's, for COVID, for example, was very, very difficult for a lot of people, including myself. Um, and home detention can be up to 12 months, but you don't get to go out necessarily. Whereas at least in COVID, you could go out for a walk and get some outside time and, um, you know, get some fresh air and et cetera. So it's like a lockdown without the pleasure of going out for a walk or you yeah, basically. In the first instance, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's 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 prison at home. Can you go to the supermarket? Um, it's twenty four seven at home, um, and it can be up to twelve months. Uh, you you can get. I think you can get exemptions to go to the supermarket and do your shopping once a week or things like that, or get it delivered to you. Yeah. And are you wearing a bracelet the whole time? Yes, yes. You've got a bracelet on that um, can find you by you know an alarm system to to the home. This is an electronic GPS bracelet fitted to your ankle. If you break that, it's alerted to uh, Chubb Security, I think, or the first security, the people that deal with it. And then they alert the cops or the police that you've breached, you know, that you're outside the bounds of your electronic bracelet. But the conditions aren't the same for everyone. It really depends on the particular circumstance of the case. Yes, it does. So there, there are standard conditions um, that... Uh, a person can that will a person will have such as the the electronic nature of it. That's that's a standard condition, and then standard conditions can also be uh, things like um, to basically to adhere and listen to any of the Department of Corrections advice on going to recommended courses and programs and things like that. And then there are also special conditions as well that are primarily imposed or suggested recommended by the Department of Corrections when they write a report on the person for sentencing purposes. And so that might be a whole range of things, such as, um, so for example, if it's a, if an offence that has involved a lot of alcohol, um, and that seems to be the, the, the main 
driver of that person's uh, offending in the past and, and also in the current one, then there'll be some sort of, hopefully there'll be some sort of recommendation that that person attends some specialist course on drinking and try to curb that drinking over the course of their home detention sentence. Can you look at things on the internet? Can you use a computer? It, again, it's, a, it's sort of um, offence determined. So if your offence arises out of that sort of thing, so if you're looking at illegal pornography, for example, then no. Or you've been, some of your offending arises out of maybe use, the use of Tinder or any of those sorts of things, then no. And um, then sometimes you can't associate with particular people. Yes, Yes, can't associate with people. Oh, there's a whole host of different things that the the probation officer or Department of Corrections can recommend, um, a long list of different things, and they're not sort of exhaustive. And then yeah. there's often exemptions to go to work as well. There, there can be. Yeah, there can be special conditions to go to work. Um, of course, work provides some sort of purpose for people, so it would be sort of counterproductive, wouldn't it, to put somebody on home detention that, that warrants home detention to get all these sort of recommended um, programs for, for rehabilitation and reintegration back into society, a better person. Um, it would be wrong, in my view, to, to for some of those people, if they've got a good job, um, to just take that job away. Because most people won't keep a job open for someone that's on home detention, very rarely anyway. Um, so, you know, a job provides purpose and structure in somebody's life. So on, on some occasions, a, a person can stay in a job. The overall home detention, mm. Mm. how is it monitored? How do we know that people are sticking to the rules? Well, um, again, the probation officer who's assigned to that case for that person giving home detention, who's got home detention, will be responsible for you know, pretty much the day-to-day of that person, particular person, and they will uh, quite often make the recommendations uh, to the judge for s- standard or special conditions, and uh, then the judge will impose them if they think it's, it's, it has merit. Um, and then after that point, then Department of Corrections will monitor that person. Mm, yep. Okay. And of okay. course, you have the oversighters if they they're outside of the curfew that the, the hours um, if they breach it, then an alarm goes off to the security company, which in course uh, in turn contacts the police. Oh, okay. So yeah. just say your curfew is like seven a.m. till nine p.m. If you're mm. out at ten p.m., mm. the monitor will automatically pick it up. Exactly. Yeah. Look, it, it, it's very strictly monitored. So, you know, at times I've had, um, for example, I had clients who might be, the curfew finishes at 9pm and then they're 9.01 and they're just getting out of the car, bang, breach. Oh, can wow. It can be a breach. So it just, again, it's just dependent on, on, on the person monitoring it. But, but generally speaking, more recently or, you know, in the last probably couple of years, as soon as there's, if you're not home by that time, it's triggered and it goes to the police, and then the police will come and arrest you. Mm. So even if you're sort of, you know, just a few minutes out, and you're inside the house, and then the reasons for that will be dealt with later, but um, it potentially can be a, br- a breach, yeah. It's certainly no, no easy sentence. I think there's a real misconception in the public that it is. It's, it's definitely not. In fact, a lot of people, I've had a lot of clients that don't like it because it's so hard. Um, so, yeah, definitely not a light sentence at all, and people really struggle on it. But it's there, you know, to uh, rehabilitate and reintegrate, and, and for the people that, it, that you know, it's justified, mm. it's a good sentence. So how does how do you kind of get to a home detention sentence in the first place? If you're just mm. um, in the courtroom, how does the judge come up with it? 
Well, you had to be eligible for home detention in the first place, and that's just eligible. Uh, you have to have your end sentence has to be around as two years or below. And then if you fit a certain number of criteria, it might be a whole lot of host of things. You might might be your age, might be your your um, your risk profile. It might be um, you know that things like you are in a good work environment, that this is a one-off or only a second one, and there's good good reason for you to be able to rehabilitate given your age. All of those sorts of things are taken into account if you get below that two-year threshold. Then you can argue for that position, and it's not always given. Even if you're below that, the judge can quite often say, well, no, I don't think it's really made out you're going to prison. New Zealand Herald senior journalist Derek Ching has been writing about home detention, particularly in relation to this case. Home detention was first introduced in the late 90s, I think, and it was a choice from the parole board. It was like a way for prisoners to reintegrate and to be released um, with conditions, if you like. And then um, there were changes which came into force in 2007, which brought it into the sentencing regime in its own right. So judges were able to sentence someone who had pleaded guilty to home detention. And at the time, the prisons were bulging because most of the people in prisons were people serving short sentences and home detention was a way to not only ease the pressure on the the prison system, but also as a way to try and help people on short sentences ease back into the community, into society in in a more supported way rather than just like taking them from prison and dumping them out in the community. So do you think it has proved to be a success? Well, I mean, these issues are always very subjective, right? But it certainly took the pressure off the prison system. And as far as reoffending rates go, someone on home detention is much less likely to reoffend than someone who serves a short prison sentence and you know serves that in prison um so these days we have about 1500 offenders on home detention uh, they serve an average of about seven months on home detention the cost of that to the state is about a fifth of what it is to house someone in prison and according to the latest corrections annual report if i'm coming out of prison after a one to two year jail sentence i'm two and a half times more likely to be reconvicted within 12 months and so on on home detention Mm. and almost three times more likely to be re-imprisoned within 12 months than someone on home detention. And those proportions are actually more acute if you go within a two-year time frame. You know, it's almost four times more likely to be re-imprisoned within two years, you know, someone on a short sentence than someone on home detention. You know, there's no black and white, really, because all of the factors that a judge weighs up in deciding a sentence, there's inherent uncertainty there. So. You can say that people on home detention are less likely to reoffend. They have more support. And that could ultimately even lead to improved public safety because if they don't have home detention and they go into prison, they come out, they're, they're going to, there's going to be a greater likelihood of them uh, reoffending. And therefore, the public will be less safer in the long run. Then you have something like what happened with Matu Reed, who was on home detention. There are no signs at the stage that he breached any rules of his home detention. And yet he went out in the public with the shotgun and he killed two people and then shot himself. So that is obviously a terrible and tragic outcome. And maybe it was foreseeable, maybe not. Judges have that predicament in the system that we have. We trust judges to make those calls. You know, something like this comes out and it undermines the trust in the judiciary, basically. And it undermines it 
um, in a very public way, and then politicians call into question whether we should give judici the judiciary that trust or whether, you know, we should be more explicit in telling them how they should sentence people. So where is the political divide at now? You know, what what are the different parties saying? Well, National, we're pretty quick to come out and say that um, Labour's goal of reducing the prison population by 30% in the next 15 years is endangering the public and they should ditch that target, which is a pretty random target in the first place. As a consequence, we've ended up in a place where uh, people you know, have often had violent crimes. Actually, it doesn't feel like the sentencing that they're getting is actually supporting that crime. And to Nationals' credit, I mean, it's not something that they've just been, they just started saying after the shooting. It's something that they've been saying consistently for a while. They also say that the cultural background reports have become a total cottage industry and the, the taxpayer funding for such reports should be cut. What we are concerned about is this um, little industry that has developed over the, the time of this government where they agreed to fund all these things. Which at the moment is like over half a million dollars a month goes into these cultural reports and there's certainly a case to look at those. In fact, I think that the government has said that it will look at those and make sure that they're fit for purpose. ACT wants to get rid of those reports completely just because it's the ACT says that it doesn't acknowledge the victim at all. But the political divide really rests on one side says that people should go to prison for longer and they're out of circulation, so that makes the public safer. And the other side says that if you do that, then A, it's going to cost a ton because we're going to have to build these massive mega prisons every few years, and B, it's not going to make the public safer because most of those people are going to have to come out again. And when they do, they're going to be more dangerous than if we had thrown all, all rehabilitative efforts at them, whether it be via home detention or alcohol and drug programs or whatever. So explain to me how Matsu Reid was given that home detention sentence. He was sentenced in March for a series of domestic violence offences that took place in September 2021. He had been drinking with his partner at the time who has automatic name suppression. There was a dispute and he ended up attacking her. He threatened her, he punched her, he threw something at her face, he kicked her and he held her by the throat for 10 seconds. And she had a fracture in her neck. As a result of that, she spent some time in hospital. He was charged with a series of offenses, the most serious of which was strangulation, which has a maximum sentence of seven years. He pled guilty. And the judge has to have a starting point for a sentence. And he agreed with the Crown. It was two years and three months. He described it was obviously a fairly significant level of violence in the offence, but it was still sort of a from the low to moderate end of strangulation offending. The judge then considers all the aggravating factors that increase the sentence. So he said there was obviously the partner was hospitalised, um, the level of violence involved, the fact that Reed was on supervision for assaults at the time of this offending and the fact that it happened in her safe place, her home. All those aggravating factors um, added up to a sentence of three years, 36 months, and then the judge considered all the mitigating factors. So he pled guilty and that was a nine-month discount, which was a discount that was agreed to by the Crown. Um, he was young and remorseful. He had a bunch of background factors which were outlined in his cultural background report. He'd run away from home at a young age. He was exposed to substance abuse, gang culture, and domestic violence when he was young, um, disconnected from his own culture, unstable education, family background, all those different things. 
And that amounted to a discount, including with his with his early guilty plea, from 36 months to a 20-month jail sentence. And because it's less than 24 months, that makes him eligible for home detention. And then the judge has to make a call about whether to sentence him to prison or to home detention. And the Sentencing Act actually says that he has to he has to impose um, the least restrictive sentence appropriate. So he decided, I mean, the judge also has to consider factors like public safety, obviously, but he decided to give Reed home detention. The probation officer also had said that given he didn't have a long string of offending history, um, he was at a low risk of reoffending, although there was a high risk of harm given the severity of the offences that he was charged with from that September night. Also effective, perhaps, was also that the victim didn't want him to go to jail. So, I mean, there's lots of different factors that a judge weighs up, and it's easy for, you know, Joe Public to say, well, Sky should have been sent to jail and never should be let out. And, you know, this is the divide, really, when we think about public opinion, which can be quite simplistic because you don't know all the details and what the judiciary might think, which knows everything, all of the factors involved, including, you know, the nature of New Zealand law and the legal precedents that are relevant. And the judge in this case decided not to send him to prison because, quote, it would set him down the the wrong path. I mean, the concern that I had about his sentencing had to do with the risk assessment process that they use to assess his likelihood of re-offense, likelihood of doing something dangerous in the future. This is Carrie Leonetti, an associate professor of law at Auckland University. These days, for the last maybe 20 years, it's been pretty standard practice in criminal sentencings for judges to ask a probation officer to provide them with a recommendation around sentencing um, that includes an assessment of the risk of reoffense. What risk assessment looks at, it really looks at the intersection of two things. It looks at the likelihood that someone will do something bad in the future, and it looks at the gravity, the severity of the thing they might do in, in the future. And multiplying those things together gives you sort of a sense of the person's danger. So read the probation officer in the report, and, and the judge sort of accepted this for his sentencing, was assessed at being at low risk of re-offense. That was because? So that's because the probation office for about 20 years now has used this risk assessment tool called the ROCROI. It's an acronym. It stands for Risk of Conviction, Risk of Imprisonment. So what they're measuring is the risk that somebody who is being sentenced today will usually it's in the fairly short term, like the next three to five years, be convicted of another offense that would carry a term of imprisonment. So they're predicting the likelihood of another serious criminal offense being committed and resulting in a conviction. The problem with using the Rockroy in a case like Matu Reed is, while he was convicted of the offenses of, like, strangulation and assault, it, it happened in the context of intimate partner violence, of domestic violence. And measures like the Rockroy, these criminal recidivism measures, are really poor measures of domestic violence risk specifically. There was also a report back in 2018 that found that 71% of homicide victims in a domestic violence setting had been strangled previously in a relationship. Yeah. So (laughs) one of the key 
charges of hers was strangulation. Right. And this is really frustrating because they just added, Parliament just added strangulation to the Crimes Act. I think it was about five or six years ago. And they did that after a lot of lobbying by domestic violence experts because a prior non-lethal strangulation is the single best predictor of future lethality. And so experts begged Parliament to treat strangulation differently because it, it really does have a strong correlation with lethality. And what appears to have happened at this sentencing is they just lumped the strangulation in with the other run-of-the-mill domestic violence charges and still kind of gave it that lack of urgency and that lack of seriousness. Yeah, yeah, and it, it wouldn't exactly be a predictor that he'd go down and shoot people uh, in the Auckland CBD, but it right. was a potential, you know, this could lead to a homicide Potentially. Yeah, likely of a woman. I mean, that is what's frustrating because there's already started to be, I think, a lot of public commentary that what he did on this construction site was not foreseeable. And I agree. I suspect he was at low risk to shoot up a work site. Almost everyone is at low risk to shoot up a work site. He was at high risk to seriously harm or kill either this woman or a future or past domestic partner. So does that mean he should have been in jail? Ugh. I mean, my personal preference is that we not use the criminal justice system as our primary response to domestic violence. I happen to think that a criminal sentencing for domestic violence is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I'd rather see us use sophisticated risk assessment earlier. Once a woman has been strangled, there's no good outcome here. We don't have a perfect system. Um, And also to try and predict something like that is, is impossible for a judge to do or or even Department of Corrections, to, to try and predict that in a risk profile is impossible. Unfortunately, there are going to be tragedies, and we can strive to be better and maybe try and address those tragedies and, and see if there's a better way. But um, in my, my view, there, there isn't. The home detention system is very good, and uh, so are the conditions around that. Uh, they are very good, and so we, we are now and then going to have a slip-up, unfortunately. The difficulty with when tragedies like this happen Society likes to blame someone. It's a human nature, really. We like to blame the judge if we can. We like to blame the prison system, whatever. We like to level some blame at someone. And the reality is there is no blame here to level at anyone. It's just a very, very tragic situation that happened. And like I say, the criminal justice system isn't at fault. We don't have to repair it um, when there are a huge amount of social issues that are at play that are the drivers of crime, not criminal justice system in in the prison sentence. That's not the driver of crime. Social issues are. And I think people really need to take that on board rather than just pointing fingers at different things. It's flawed thinking. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to John Munro, Derek Cheng, and Carrie Leonetti. Kakiti Anup.